and welcome to Taxland with me, Fletch Heineman. And me, Sarah Lancaster. Sarah, it's an exciting day today. We've got our very first episode of our podcast. Um, but before we get started with today's episode, do you want to talk to us about why we're starting a podcast called Taxland? It's going to be a very safe environment, I think, for you and I and some special guests in the future to talk all things topical in tax. So we're very excited to uh, be given an avenue where we can let our tax nerd fly free. Excellent. And speaking of which, so today we're going to talk about in episode one, our debut episode. Yes, it's a very topical issue at the moment and one that all of our medical professional clients are feeling. So today we're going to be talking all things payroll tax and the new QRO's ruling or the QRO's new ruling about how payroll tax might apply uh, to medical centres and in particular payments that medical centres make to their doctors and allied health professionals. Now, in all my days, I never thought I would see the day where the Courier-Mail put on its front page a cover story about payroll tanks. But 2023, here, here we, we are. are. <laughs> and um, so what's the, what's the backstory? Yeah, so the backstory to this issue um, really comes out of a couple of cases, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but essentially what we're looking at is whether or not the payments that medical centres may make to doctors under service arrangements, for example, are taxable wages for the medical centre. So there's been a whole heap of uh, lobbying from um, bodies like the AMA Queensland and Queensland and also uh, the AMA bodies in our southern states as well um, about uh, these new cases, which I guess has sort of changed the avenue for how medical centres have carried on their businesses in the past. And, you know, certainly this idea that uh, payments to doctors have never been taxable wages for medical centres and a couple of cases out of New South Wales and Victoria have have, I guess, changed that interpretation or that approach to, to how the relevant contract provisions and the payroll tax legislation apply. So today we're going to be diving into the relevant contract provisions for the Queensland legislation and looking at how uh, the QRO interprets those uh, provisions and how those provisions apply to medical centres. All right, let's do it. So, I mean, let's start from the start. So the, the title of the ruling, Relevant Contracts, um, medical centres, um, at a high level, what's the ruling about? Yeah, so, I mean, the high level is really picking up, I guess, on the QROs or the the Commissioner of Taxation in Queensland's views on how the relevant contract provisions in the payroll tax legislation apply to medical centres and payments that medical centres are, are making to you know, doctors or practitioners more generally. So we heard a lot recently um, in terms of the amnesty in Queensland for um, practices by way of general practices. So lots of discussion there where GPs um, had done some lobbying of the, the Queensland government through Treasury um, and we ended up with an amnesty. Um, so are we confined to looking at GP practices in this ruling? Yeah, good question. So uh, the short answer, I think, is no. So it's a bit broader than that. The actual ruling itself in, in one of the early paragraphs looks at uh, what a medical centre business is. And the QRO uses that phrase, medical centre. So they look at um, centres like dental clinics, physiotherapy practices, radiology centres, and then there's this broad catch-all or similar healthcare providers 
that engage in medical, dental and other health practitioners or their entities. Um, so I think it extends much broader than simply GPs and certainly um, the while the amnesty only relates to payments to GPs, the, the tax risks and the payroll tax obligations are, are much broader than payments that GP practices are making to GPs. So, um, yeah, mm. certainly broader than just our, our GP clients. So we've still really got that risk there that, for example, GP practices might be falling within the scope of the amnesty, but we'd have other medical practices that are coming up with against these issues, but potentially no amnesty available. Yeah, certainly. Certainly something that um, is specific for, you know, uh, specialists. So if you're looking at specialist surgeons or anaesthetists, for example, um, then they'll fall within this. Then you have other sort of healthcare providers, which could be, you know, psychologists, for example, that are not um, specifically named in the ruling, but, you know, will arguably be subject to it. Yeah. Um, all right. So before we get into the crux of the ruling, let's just take a step back. Um, so payroll tax 101, how does it work? Payroll tax, uh, one of your favourite anecdotes if you want to tell the um, tell the listeners where payroll tax comes from, Fletch. Well, I mean, the, the issue with payroll tax these days and why it's such a difficult tax for businesses um, to have to swallow really is that the, the origin story of payroll tax was that it was uh, designed as a tax on labour So and the proxy for that was the payroll. Um, and essentially had origins in the uh, the world wars, so where there was a, a disincentive um, for people to um, to be uh, to go to war. So um, I don't know how relevant that rationale is in 2023, and I don't think that um, it's a great tax, but uh, probably preaching to the converted there. <laughs> Something we're left with. Um, and. I think the other difficult part for businesses with payroll tax, and particularly in the context of medical centres, is that we're dealing with a threshold. So often um, smaller businesses won't have had to have dealt with payroll tax for a long period of time because they would have fallen under that threshold. Um, and at some point they'll go over the threshold um, and they need to be alive to their, their obligations. Um, so... Uh, what is payroll tax attached to? Yeah, so payroll tax is attached to taxable wages as defined. So um, it covers things, I guess, from the starting point if you've got wages or salaries that are paid to common law employees, so you employ an individual, pay them a salary, um, that amount is included in your taxable wages when you're considering sort of the threshold and uh, the amount of taxable wages that the payroll tax uh, then attaches to. But it's much broader than that. And I think that that's one of the tricky things that um, people often um, forget to keep in mind or just overlook. Uh, so it goes beyond just payments of salaries. And in the context of what we're talking about today, um, really what we're looking at is payments to in essentially independent contractors. Um, so those taxing provisions are included in the relevant contract or the contractor provisions in the legislation. And uh, what, uh, I guess at a very high level, the way that they um, tax the taxable wages is that they deem amounts that are paid by a principal to an independent contractor to be taxable wages or to be wages, um, unless one of many exemptions and apply. And we'll get into the exemptions a bit later on, but it, it just, I guess, 
uh, payroll tax at a higher level extends beyond just your salary and wages paid to common law employees. And for ta- today's purposes, what we're really drilling down into is is these deeming provisions for the relevant contracts. Mm. I guess the other thing with um, talking about relevant contracts for payroll tax is that unlike PAYG withholding and the superannuation guarantee charge, when we're talking about relevant contracts, it could be a company, it could be a partnership, it could be a trust. So, I mean, particularly in the context of um, medical services where a lot of medical practitioners will have incorporated their own company, they might be the sole director, shareholder of that company, but they've still got a company that's entering into those contracts. We're still very much in payroll tax land uh, mm. dealing with those, those issues. So in terms of thinking about independent contractors, um, I mean, we commonly see medical practices structured in one of two ways. Do you want to talk about those two options? Yeah, sure. So the first, I guess, option is, I don't know, what I refer to as a practice model. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use that just in a general way. But essentially, um, the medical centre is the entity that um, you know is carrying on the medical practice. It has the goodwill that's attached to the medical centre business, it has all the patients, and then it engages the doctors to provide services. And it generally will engage the doctors by one of two ways, either as an employee, you engage the doctor as an employee, or as a contractor, um, and you might enter into that um, into that agreement with the doctor themselves, the individual doctor, or with um, one of an entity that they use. Um, so that's the first model, the practice model. We're really focusing then on the medical centre providing those services to the patients. Mm-hmm. The second option, and I, um, yeah, this is a very common option as well, is what we call a service entity model. So there, um, the contractual flow of services is a bit different. So it's the doctors themselves or their entities that are carrying on the medical practice. So they uh, see all the uh, patients and the patients, I guess, belong, for want of a better word, to the doctors. They then pay a percentage fee or a fee to the service entity that provides sort of admin assistance and nursing assistance, billing assistance, so all of those administrative type um, services and they might also supply equipment and things like that to the doctors. So in that model really we're looking at the doctors are providing services to the patients and the, the service entity itself is really just providing those services to the doctors for a fee. The issue that we get though is that practically um, we're finding a lot of examples where those two models are muddled up, they're conflated, um, they're mixed up. So really, um, and and the cases have shown that the the trouble is that we're trying to um, extract what the contractual relationship is um, and the starting point that we have is that, you know, realistically it can be a mix of two models which makes the it makes the task a little bit more difficult. Mm. I think um, certainly seen some recent audit activity where the QRO has started from the basis that they're in the um, medical practice model because of what's being filed in income tax returns. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing the patient fees going into the medical practices entity as its income and then the payments to the contractor as its expenses. Um, and then for payroll tax purposes, trying to then argue that it's a service entity model, um, we've got some difficulties because we've got inconsistencies there in terms of how it's being reported. Um, okay, so then just going back to um, 
where the origin of this ruling came from. So there's a bit of case law that sits behind it and fairly recent case law, which I think is part of the difficulty as to why a lot of medical practices have been caught off guard is that the the case law is um, relatively recent and has certainly been taken up by the revenue authorities as potentially giving us a payroll tax taxing point that potentially businesses otherwise didn't think existed. Mm. Um, so let's talk about those cases. Those cases, yeah. Well, I um, I think that a lot of the recent um, the recent publicity around this issue has come from a case out of New South Wales, Thomas and Naz. But before we even get to that case, there was um, some decisions out of Victoria, the Victorian Tribunal, then the Supreme Court and Court of Appeal, um, that the optical superstores was a party to um, as against the Revenue Commissioner in Victoria. Um, and those cases sort of go back now a fair few times. I think the first one was run in 2017. Mm. Um, and really what the, that case the optical superstores looked at um, was payments that the optical superstores entities were making to optometrists that they engaged. Um, now, the tribunals and courts on appeal in that case um, made some really interesting findings of fact about what the optical superstore's business model was. And I think critically to those decisions was this finding that the optical superstores was you know, carrying on a business providing these optometry services to the public. So there you're looking at those conclusions that say, well, it's really the optical superstores that's carrying on the medical centre practice if we're putting it in the terms of the ruling. Mm. So with that in mind, um, the, um, the, op- the optical superstore said, well, you know, the payments that they were receiving from patients of the optometrist, so the patients would come in, see their optometrist, would pay their fee for that consult to the optical superstores, and then the optical superstores would pay um, or would remit the balance of the money to the optometrist after keeping their service fee. Yeah. So that part of it, I guess, is more consistent with your service entity model. Um, and the optical superstores said that under the payroll tax legislation, the remittance of that money from the optical superstores bank account to the optometrist was not a payment that could be taxable wages under the Victorian legislation. And really that was because those payments were held on trust for the optometrist. So we ran this argument that said, well, the money's coming into the optical superstore's bank account, sure, that money is not legally and beneficially the optical superstore's money, it belongs to the Mm. optometrist. So when they're remitting it back, um, there's no sort of payment that could be wages. So what the courts and tribunals, like I said, in that matter at the end of it all was that the, the word payment that we're looking for in the legislation is broader than who has the legal or beneficial ownership of that money, essentially. So a payment can be anything, which is where I guess that, that first piece of authority comes from. So when we're looking at a payment from one entity to another, we don't need to go so far as to say that that payment is a payment of money that beneficially belongs to someone. Um, it just just means that there's a payment if you use it in an mm. ordinary word. So I pay you $20 and that's going to be a payment um, that that might you know, fall 
uh, within the definition of wages under the payroll tax legislation. Mm, so even if we've got a medical practice that receives the patient fees and that's part of the services that it provides to its doctors, for example, um, if even if those fees are held on trust or as agent for the particular doctor, as soon as you've got a payment out of that trust account to the doctor, we've still got a payment. Yes, we've still got a payment. Yeah. Um, Certainly right. where the updated ruling goes to, too, without spoiling the ending. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, and then we get to Thomas and Naz in New South Wales. Yeah, so Thomas and Naz in New South Wales, it's probably the more well-known case, I guess, around town. Yeah, I think it's caused a a lot of consternation. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So Thomas and Naz was a case that involved a GP practice. So um, Thomas and Naz operated the medical centres. The payment of uh, patient fees um, or Medicare benefits essentially in Thomas and Naz was such that Medicare benefits were assigned by each of the GPs to the Thomas and Naz entity. So those Medicare benefits get paid to the Thomas and Naz entity. And again, we have a service fee that's kept by the entity and the balance of those patient fees are remitted to the individual doctors. Mm. Um, now, the tribunal in Thomas and Naz um, went through the agreements that the contractors or the doctors had with the entity in great detail. And we're looking at clauses in agreements that require the doctors to comply with practice policies. We're looking at, you know, specific times that doctors are required to provide services to patients from Thomas and Naz's premises. We're looking at, um, you know, clauses that restrain the doctors from carrying on practices within certain, um, you know, distances and time periods after they finish mm-hmm. um, working for Thomas and Naz. So all of those sorts of clauses that really indicate that there was a high level of control that the the practice entity operated over the doctors really led to the tribunal's conclusion that the doctors were providing services to the practice entity, mm-hmm. albeit they were also providing services to their patients. And I think that is where the key analysis comes from when we're looking at the application of the relevant contract provisions is, that, you know, who's providing services to who. Mm. And as soon as we get to a factual situation where your doctors or your practitioners are providing services to a practice as well as to their patients, the risk from a payroll tax perspective comes very high. Yeah. And I guess for that, we're going to get different sets of circumstances depending on the nature of the practice, potentially depending on the nature of the the medical industry that they're practicing as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you can imagine circumstances, for example, general practices where there's more likely to be goodwill and patients um, belonging to, in inverted commas, the practice entity. Um, whereas I think in practice, I think our experience is more the, the more specialised a particular medical practitioner is, um, the more that the goodwill resides with themselves personally um, and they still might be uh, receiving services from a service entity for that. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's correct. But... Um, all right, so the really the risk that we've got to identify is where we've got a medical practitioner who's providing services, yes, to their patients, that's accepted, but can also be seen to be providing services to the medical practice entity slash service entity, mm. bearing in mind that the QR is not really going to worry about what it's called. Um, no, medical centres, yeah. Medical centres, <laughs> to use a neutral term. 
Um, all right, so uh, let's start a deep dive into the um, the ruling. So first point, when does the QRO say that these cases will apply? Yeah, so the QRO's ruling, I mean, the paragraph that we're looking at for anyone playing along at home is paragraph 11. So, I mean, we need to tick off a few different um, factors. So, and the QRO's view is that all of these factors need to apply um, for the relevant contract provisions to apply to, to these types of contracts. So the first one is that the practitioner, so the doctor um, or you know, general practitioner is carrying on a business or practice providing medical-related services to patients. Mm-hmm. So uh, presumably that one gets ticked off Tick in box, yeah. um, all cases. Mm-hmm. The second factor is that in the course of conducting its business, the medical centre, so we're here we're looking at the practice slash service entity, is providing members of the public with access to medical-related services. Mm-hmm. And then the second part of it is that they are engaging a practitioner to supply services to the medical centre by serving patients on the medical centre's behalf. Mm-hmm. And then the third factor we need to check is whether or not any of the statutory exemptions apply. Yeah. So I guess the first question there that um, so really we're looking at that middle middle mm. factor. So the the medical centre provides members of the public with access to medical related services. Um, I understand what that means in the context of a of a general practice where somebody can walk in and see the GP um, that's there and is available to see them. I can see that that will apply. Um, but what about where we've got a service entity that is, for example, advertising the services of practitioners on a website? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think that that is the risk. The phrase access to medical related services and that word access is so broad. Mm. So it can apply to, for example, you know, if you've just got a list of practitioners and their contact details. But what, for example, would um, yeah, would the analysis then be different if you had a list of practitioners that took them to their own website? So if you had mm-hmm. sort of links then to a doctor who, you know, is is carrying on their own practice seeing patients and has a separate website that indicates, you know, that's consistent mm-hmm. with that happening. Um, so I think that um, certainly the QRO's view um, and I think that the risk is is higher where you've got um, a set of facts or circumstances that indicates that the the medical centre, to use the the general term, um, is yeah, representing to the public that yeah, they have uh, yeah half a dozen doctors or something that can be seen on these available. days. Yep, that mm. are available to see you. Yep. That charge specific some specific amounts or out of pocket expenses for an appointment and things like that. Yeah, and then the the second part of it then goes to the medical centre then. Um, serving, sorry, the practitioner is going to supply services to the the medical centre by serving patients on the mm. medical centre's behalf. So really, we're looking at at a high level who owns, in inverted commas, the the patients. Yeah, who owns the patients, and then what that contract is. So, is the practitioner providing services um, by seeing patients that belong to the medical centre, or is the practitioner just doing that in its own business? So mm. I think there you get a different analysis. Again, this I think this phrase is is pulled directly from the judgment in Thomas and Naz from the tribunal. So there you're looking at um, you know things that indicate that the patients belong to the practice as opposed mm. to the doctor. 
Yeah. Um, and, and again, you're looking at those sort of aspects of control and how the medical centre represents to the public what its business is. Mm. So, yeah, I guess that, again, highlights the difference between, for example, a, um, a, a general practice that's got a high level of control over the people that work there compared to other medical practices or, um, yeah, other medical practices where there isn't that level of control and a query as to whether or not the medical centre's got the relationship with the patient or I think in practice what's, what I see is that it's not clear either. It's, there's no yeah. bright lines in a lot of these cases where patients sometimes might be attracted by the name of the medical centre and in other cases they've been referred to a particular doctor or specialist to go and see them. Um, so it's really a question of delving into the particular facts to figure out what that risk is. Yeah, and I think today too a lot of um, medical centres have you know, general practitioners that may be general practitioners but they have subspecialties. So you mm. might have a general practitioner that specialises in mental health um, but, you know, is not a you know, yeah. psychologist. So I think the factual, I guess that's the important part about drilling down to exactly what the business is and, you know, how those relation, how those services actually apply. Yeah. All right. So the other thing that the QRO ruling flags is the potential that some of the exemptions apply. Mm. So even if we've got this problem that the medical practitioner is seen to be providing services both to their patients and to the medical centre, um, the services being provided theoretically to the medical centre may still be exempt. So there's a whole stack of exemptions, but really only a handful are relevant here. Yep. So I guess the first one, often the easiest one to, to apply, is the 90 days or less exemption. Um, I say easy, although not always in all circumstances. <laughs> um, so it's a pretty straightforward sort of exemption in theory. Um, if you have, if we apply it in this context, if you have a doctor who's um, providing services for 90 days or less, um, in a financial year, then though the payments to that doctor will be exempt under the relevant contract provisions. Um, so, you know, provided we've got evidence of, you know, when the doctor's appointments are and things like that, which hopefully we can maintain in the um, practice software, mm -hmm. then, you know, we can, we can calculate how many days the doctors are, are providing services to patients. Um, the big one to keep in mind for that, though, is that any part of a day is going to be a day when you're calculating or when you're counting your 90 days. Yeah. So if uh, a doctor's seen one patient in the morning, that's still going to be a day, um, even though it's only been you know, an hour or so mm. um, providing those services. The second one that we often find is the two or more employees exemption. So yep. um, it will uh, generally it'll apply where, for example, you've got uh, the doctor plus one or more employees that they engage or, you know, if they operate out of a partnership, another partner, mm -hmm. um, and the services that they're providing are provided by those two or more employees, yep. if that makes sense. Yep. Um, and then the third one, which I think is really interesting and probably well, really interesting for the tax nerd in me <laughs> and probably something that we'll see a little bit little bit of development on, I think, mm. is the ordinarily provide services to the public generally exemption. So yeah. it's going to kick in if we don't satisfy the 90 days or less exemption and the two or more employees exemption mm -hmm. um, and will apply where um, the practitioner, so the doctor, provides the kind of services that they're providing 
um, to the public generally. Yep. Now, the QRO's uh, view in the ruling um, is that when you're looking at the kind of services that the doctors are providing, we need to drill down on the kind of services they're providing to the medical centre mm -hmm. as distinct from the services that they're providing to the patient. Right. How do you feel about that? <sighs> I yeah I don't I don't know how we get there to be, to be frank. <laughs> <laughs> I um I think it's I think it's interesting because the QRO's ruling if we go back to how this ruling applies and the the revenues view on how the provisions apply one of the things that we need to tick off is that the doctors are providing services to patients. Mm. So to me that that is I guess a a fact that is uncontroversial. Mm. Um, in all cases, I would say, I haven't been able to think of an example where that wouldn't be the case. Mm. So if that's the case, then providing services to patients has to be a part of the doctors providing services, medical services, to the public generally. Patients are almost the definition of the public. You would think so, yeah. Mm. And also, I mean, I could see a potential can I see a potential argument? That's the mm. question, I guess. But there's a, a potential distinction between the services that the doctors provide the medical centre mm -hmm. as opposed to the services that they provide their patients. Yep. However, again, I go back to you know that paragraph 11 at the top of the ruling, which says that the services that the doctors are providing are the services to the patients on behalf mm. of the medical centre. So here we're still talking about, you know, mm the medical services that doctors are providing to patients. So realistically, this, there's only one set of services yeah. being provided, as in the medical practitioner is seeing the patient. The, the cases indicate that somebody else might be provided with those services, being both the patient and the medical centre, but we've still got the one set of services. Yeah, one set of circumstances, yeah. of services yeah. rather. And I think that that might be the difficulty in the, the ruling deals with uh, other services of a kind and tries to draw a distinction mm. that says, well, they're of a different kind, what's being provided to the patients compared to what's being provided to the medical centre. But I think factually there's one set of services is that mm. you're seeing a patient and, yes, people are going to get different benefits from it, as in the patients will get the benefit of medical treatment or consultation. Service entity will get the benefit of that, um, that enhancing their business, presumably. Yep. Um, but I think there's a distinction there between the benefits that different people get compared to what the services are. So I think it's still open there for somebody to run that case to test whether we're within the scope of the exemption, mm. even if the medical practice is only providing services at one location. Yeah, and even if the doctor's only you know, providing services at that one medical practice. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's a question mark. Certainly the, the ruling um, relies on a comment from the tribunal in Thomas and Nars that says, well, it, effectively the tribunal said that it would be good to have a look at some evidence about whether or not this mm. exemption applied. But I think that um, the position is a little bit further away from that, that statement from the tribunal mm. in Thomas and Nars. Um, but certainly, I guess, some comfort that we, you know, where medical centres have uh, practitioners who are providing services to patients at more than one medical centre mm. um, that are not related, that are unrelated, um, that this, you know, the QRO, you know, QRO's view is that, you know, this exemption may very well apply. Yeah. Practically, though, um, 
the application an application has to be made to the commissioner. Mm, so you know, it's not something you can self assess unless you come within that ten days a month automatic mm. method in the ruling itself. So yeah. you know, it's it's a bit of a tricky one for um, advisors and clients because. As with all of these types of matters, you don't want your client to be the first test case <laughs> running it through the court. So um, it's certainly something, I guess, to keep an eye on and, and to consider whether or not we get advice. Mm. All right, let's um, move along to talk about payments um, because payments were a massive concern following the first version of mm. the, the ruling. Um, the payments section in the updated ruling, I think it's fair to say, is so significant that it probably introduces um, a lot of new material mm. um, and that medical centres really should be scrutinising the QRO's position under this new ruling because I think under the first version of the ruling really left the door open to say any type of payment was potentially a, a third-party payment that could be a taxable wage um so um i guess the the starting position though is first of all to understand if we've got a particular payment flow and when we talk about pay- payment flow really we're talking about does the cash or the medicare benefit come into the doctor's own bank account or the doctor's personal company's bank account and then they separately make a payment of the service fee to the service entity um or is the payment going into the medical centre's bank account, which I think historically has been fairly common? Mm. Um, certainly, I, th- I think my experience would probably put that about nine out of ten historically as to um, to where those payments were going into, and then for the medical centre to retain their service fee and and pay the rest out to the medical practitioner. So, if the payment flow is um, safe, in inverted commas, according to the QRO ruling. Do we need to look at the Thomas and Naz analysis? Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think we do. I think the short answer is we do. I don't think it's yep. as as straightforward as that. And certainly, when we dig into the examples that are in the new, well, the updated ruling, mm. um, it's um, we do need to be careful of that. You need to drill into the detail um, to be satisfied because I think that. Um, you know, certainly you can rely on the on the QRO's view if your circumstances, you know, potentially fall within exactly fall within mm. one of the examples. Um, but there are certainly cases that I've seen and clients that that don't fall exactly within one of these mm. examples. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think the short answer is we still need to look at sort of where the services flow is. Um, because I mean you can the deeming provisions do apply to third-party payments in some circumstances. So mm. if the flow of services still indicate that the doctors are working for the deemed employer, the practice mm. slash service entity, then you've still got that risk. We need to be careful. Yeah. Okay, this might be a good chance to take a short break. Um, one day we might have sponsors and this is where you'll hear from them right here. But in the meantime, here's some theme music. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about the QRO's ruling on medical centres, looking at when it applies, when exemptions might apply, and what's happening with payments. 
All right, so um, let's get into the examples because I, I think uh, it's human nature to be attracted by the examples <laughs> rather than the technical analysis and the legislation and the, the cases. Um, and if you do have a copy of the uh, the ruling, not necessarily with you now, but when you go and peruse it uh, at uh, bedtime tonight to help you sleep, you'll see some diagrams in there as well. So, um, but as, at a high level, you have to be really careful with some of the facts set out mm. in these these rulings because a, a slight change in facts, very careful not to make assumption because a slight change in facts potentially gives us the opposite conclusion. Um, we'll start with example uh, 10. Now I'll read it out for the benefit um, for those at home. So example 10 is payments by a medical centre to practitioners are taken to be wages. So they say... Under relevant contracts with practitioners, ABC, which operates a medical centre, is paid out-of-pocket patient fees in addition to assigned Medicare benefits from patients on behalf or of or directed by the practitioners. All patient revenue is paid to ABC and deposited in ABC's bank account. So our patient flow is going into ABC's bank account. Mm -hmm. They then say each practitioner is paid 70% of the patient revenue attributable to the practitioner for their services. ABC retains 30% of the patient revenue as an administration fee. So reasonably comfortable there that we're in the first model that we've got of a medical centre practice, payments going into them, then they have to make a payment to the practitioner. Yeah, certainly. Sort of the pages that, I mean, sorry, the fact pattern that's picked out of Thomas and Naz. Yeah. Without analysing where the services are, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Now, then if we get to the ones that are going to, uh, I think, be of interest to uh, most businesses are the ones where the QRO said it's not a, uh, a taxable wage. So example 12, which is titled Assigned Medicare Benefits Paid Directly to a Practitioner. So we've got here, ABC, which again operates a medical centre, enters into a contract with Dr. Lyle, who agrees to treat patients for or on behalf of ABC. And then the ruling says that contract is a relevant contract and none of the exemptions apply. So um, they then say that ABC is taken to be an employer under Section 13C and Dr. Lyle is taken to be an employee. Um, so our payment flow there is that the patient fee comes uh, by way of Medicare benefit is coming into the practitioner, into the practitioner, Dr. Lyle's bank account, and he's then making an administration payment uh, to ABC. So what do the QROs say about that? Yeah, so the QRO's position is that in that situation, the payment to from the patient or from the Medicare entity to the payment of the Medicare benefit to the practitioner is not taxable wages of ABC. And they come to that conclusion um, on the basis that uh, there is no, firstly, that there's no payment by ABC to the practitioner. Mm -hmm. So here we've got the Medicare benefits being paid directly to Dr. Lyle. So yep. no payment from ABC to Dr. Lyle. But the second part of it, and I think that this is where it gets interesting for the later examples, is that um, that, that payment of the Medicare benefit can't be deemed wages, can't be a deemed third-party payment because the payment is for the statutory benefit under the relevant Medicare Act rather than for Dr. Lyle's services as a deemed employee of ABC. Mm. And I, um, 
you know, at a, at a very high level, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, the Medicare benefits clearly for the services that Dr. Lyle's providing to the patient and is paid to Dr. Lyle for the entity being those services. But um, in this example, there is also a finding that there is a relevant contract between ABC and Dr. Lyle mm. and that Dr. Lyle is a deemed employee under the relevant contract provisions. Yeah. Yep. So we really having to deal with the payment flow is what's getting us out for that being taxable wages. All right. So that example 12 was on Medicare benefits. Example 13 then picks up same concept, but out of pocket fees that are paid directly to a practitioner. So it says the same facts as example 12, except the patients Dr. Lyle treats also pay any out of pocket patient fees directly to her. Mm -hmm. These payments are not taken to be wages under section 13 E because they're not paid or payable by ABC under a relevant contract. That's fair enough. Yep. Um, no payment. No payment. Um, and then they say further such payments are not taken to be wages under Section 51, which is about the third-party payment provisions, uh, because the payment is for the provision of medical services to the patient and not for Dr. Lyle's services as a deemed employee of ABC. Mm. So I think at a high level, um, businesses will get some comfort from that conclusion but i think the real thing to watch there is that that conclusion that it's on the basis that the medical services are provided solely to the patient yeah i agree and um you know there's there's and i think that this comes back to i guess the the um the, tr- the tricky part of all of these cases is looking at the factual circumstances and having a think about what the qro or what a court or a tribunal will find in terms of how those those facts apply to the legislation. So mm. if there's something that indicates that Dr. Lyle is providing services to ABC, then I think there is a real question of fact, fact as to whether an amount paid to Dr. Lyle is for those services. And then it becomes sort of a you know, mm. maybe a valuation exercise mm. to say, you know, if there's $200 coming into Dr. Lyle's bank account, is 150 of that for the services that she's providing to the patients mm-hmm. and is the other $50 for you know, yeah. some other services that she's providing to ABC? Yeah. That would be difficult to get evidence on. Absolutely, mm. and especially evidence after the fact. Mm. You know, if this is not something that's contemplated by the arrangements at the time, and certainly something to yeah will be very difficult to try and instill mm. afterwards. So I guess where we end up with out of both of those is that we still need to deal with the fact pattern between the patient, the practitioner, and the service entity. All right, so I'll move along to example 14. So these ones here are the same facts as example 11. So if we just go back to this was where the patient revenue was coming into ABC being the practice entity. So in this example, all out-of-pocket patient fees and assigned Medicare benefits from patients are collected by and paid to ABC. Mm -hmm. Um, The payments of patient revenue from patients to ABC are not taken to be taxable wages under Section 51. Um, as discussed above, then what we've got is that under the relevant contract between ABC and Foxco, so this is a a company that's been incorporated by, we can assume, Dr. Fox. Dr. Fox, yep. Um, (laughs) And um, so we've got a payment then of that 70% of the patient revenue from ABC to Foxco, which is then subsequently paid by Foxco to Dr. Fox doing the right thing. And clearing out the net profits for income tax purposes. 
So what do the QROs say about that? Yeah, so um, if we look at all the different payments, so the payment from the patient to ABC, the patient mm-hmm. revenue, uh, the QRO says are not taxable wages, then the payment from Foxco to the practitioner, Dr. Fox, of I guess the net net amounts there, the 70% of the patient revenue after the service fee, mm-hmm. not taxable wages. And then the payment by ABC to Foxco of 70% of the patient revenue is the deemed wages part. Yep. Yep. And so that's just emphasising that where we've got payment, a payment coming into ABC and then a payment coming out from the medical centre to the doctor's company, um, that's going to be caught by those deeming provisions. Yep, Yep. that's exactly right. All right. So let's move on to example uh, 15, which essentially deals with a a clearinghouse. So in this example, ABC operates a medical centre and enters into a contract with Dr. Wolf. Um, I'm not sure about these doctors' names, uh, who agree to treat patients for on behalf of ABC. So just highlight those Mm. words, to treat patients for on behalf of ABC. So they say that's a relevant contract um, and none of the exemptions apply. Um, The QRO concludes in that case that ABC is taken to be an employer under Section 13C and Dr. Wolf is taken to be an employee. Now, the payment flow in this particular example is that the patient revenue comes into a company called Pico, um, which is a third-party clearinghouse. At the end of each month, Pico is required to pay 30% of the patient revenue to ABC and then 70% to Dr. Wolf. Um, what does the QRO say about the use of that clearinghouse? Yeah, so the QRO's position is that the payments by the clearinghouse to Dr. Wolf um, are going to be deemed wages under the third-party um, mm-hmm. pr- payment provisions. And the reason for that is because the payments are consideration for the services that Dr. Wolf would have been paid, um, assuming that he had been paid by ABC, by the medical centre. Yep. Um, and I think what's key there is that, uh, as you say above, the, the highlighting the words, the contract um, is between ABC and Dr. Wolf, who agrees to treat patients mm-hmm. for or on behalf of ABC. So there you get that fact situation where there is a payment coming to Dr. Wolf um, and determining what that payment is for and whether or not it's for his services or her services that are provided under that relevant contract with ABC in their capacity as an employee. Yeah. So really we're going to have to dig down here. It's not just the payment flow, but we also need to look at the terms of the contract. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that comes out of the words from Section 51. I mean, if you go back Mm. to that section, it's it's not just payments paid by a third party to an individual. Um, It looks at payments that are paid um, for services that the individual provides as an employee and I just takes you say, back to relevant contracts, yeah, correct, mm. including all your deemed employee provisions throughout the, yeah. <laughs> the payroll tax legislation. Yeah. All right. So we'll move on to now example uh, sixteen, which is um, probably my least favourite of all the ex- <laughs> examples because. Um, oh, look, well, I won't spoil the surprise. We'll get into it. Probably raises more questions than it answers, oh, doesn't that's it? Ex- that's exactly <laughs> it. So we've got, in this case, GHI operates a medical centre and it enters into a contract with Dr Singh who agrees to treat patients for on behalf of GHI. So, again, put that in highlighting, put it in bold. That's going to be a particularly yeah, relevant fact. Um, 
Now, uh, under the contract, there's then a contract where Singco Proprietary Limited, which we can assume is Dr. Singh's company, um, we don't have to assume it, the ruling says it's owned and controlled by Dr. Singh. Um, so Singco is then paid directly all assigned Medicare benefits from patients and any out-of-pocket patient fees attributable to Dr. Singh for his services to GHI. And then at the end of each month, Singco is required to pay GHI 30% of the patient revenue as an administration fee, and the remaining 70% is then subsequently paid by Singco to Dr. Singh. So we just think about all the patient revenue is coming into Singco Proprietary Limited, regardless of whether it's a Medicare benefit or an out-of-pocket um, payment. Um, and so what does the QRO then say about that? Yeah, really good question. So the QRO's position in the example is that, so the patient revenue that comes into Cinco isn't wages mm -hmm. for similar reasons that we have discussed in the earlier examples. Yeah. So the payments are essentially not for you know, Dr. Singh's services as an uh, as a deemed employer of or employee of the practice entity GHI. Mm -hmm. So that's, I guess, the patient revenue coming into Singco. However, where the QRO then goes is that the payments from Singco to Dr. Singh, so you know, any distribution of or yeah, mm -hmm. income out of that company to Dr. Singh, are going to be taken to be wages paid by GHI. And that is on the basis that uh, the payments are consideration for the services that Dr. Singh is a deemed employee of GHI um, receives or he would mm. have been paid those amounts as wages. Yep. So that's where you get that critical finding from earlier on when we're looking at you know GHI entering into that contract for Dr. Singh to provide the circumstances. Mm. And I really query as uh, you know if we get a different result if the relevant contract or the sorry the relevant space contract, not the relevant contract yep. for parallel tax purposes, but the contract that we're talking about mm. is just between GHI and Singco. Yeah, yeah, because this is the example that's really going to cause a red flag for a lot of practices where they they see that it is taxable wages for the medical practice entity because if they had reviewed the examples above and seen that patient revenue coming into just Dr. Singh in his own name, if he then pays a service fee to the medical practice, um, that's going to fall within the examples that it's not deemed to be mm. taxable wages. So we then get this example that because the patient revenue is coming into, well, it looks like it's coming into Cinco on the diagram, um, and then Cinco will then make a payment of that patient revenue to GHI. But really the critical factor that we've got to consider then is how is Dr. Singh then a deemed, deemed employee, employee of GHI? And really it comes back to the contractual provision at the start where we've got that assumption then that GHI operates a medical centre and enters into a contract with Dr. Singh, yep. not Dr. Singh's company. So um, it's, um, it's unfortunate that we don't have a further example after this one that deals with situations where the only contract is between GHI and Singco Proprietary yeah. Limited because I think the, the risk is that people look at this example and say, hang on, this is deemed to be taxable wages. We've got to get rid of Singco out yeah. of this structure. And that could cause more problems than a potential <laughs> payroll tax risk. So, I, yeah, I'd be careful about um, certainly for any advisors giving that advice to clients. Mm. But, I mean, I yeah, I 
I have to say in practice, this is not an example I would see come up regularly. I wouldn't ordinarily see a contract between a medical centre and an individual doctor Mm. that includes a direction for those payments to be made yeah, to the doctor's entity. So, mm. I, I mean, I've seen contracts where you've got a contract between the medical centre and the doctor's company or the yep. doctor's trust. Sure, that's much more common, mm. but it would be a rare occasion for that agreement to then you know, prescribe, if if we're in a service entity mm. arrangement, prescribe for the specific doctor to yeah. be providing those services. I think one thing that it does um, draw out, though, is the uh, – if we have a situation where Singco is a party to the contract, Dr. Singh is also a party to that same contract. Mm. We have to be careful then that if Dr. Singh's picking up contractual obligations to GHI, even mm. though the, the principal um, you know, service uh, recipient in that contract is Singco. Mm. So I think really we need to be careful about those tripod tripartite contracts now, which is also something we're looking at for PAYG withholding and super purposes um, following the ACO's ruling on that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. It's so nice that they all line up. They, um, <laughs> yeah. So um, two more examples. This one's dealing with a medical practice. JKL enters into a contract with Dr. Lopez, who agrees to treat patients for on behalf of JKL. So again, using that as the, the starting point. Um, in this example, we've got patient revenue coming in to an entity called 123 Unit Trust, um, and JKL owns and controls 123 Unit Trust. Um, at the end of each month, the 123 Unit Trust is required to pay 70% of the patient revenue by way of a trust distribution to Dr. Lopez, and the remaining 30% of the patient revenue is then retained by the 123 Unit Trust as an administration fee. So what happens there? Yes, this is, I guess, similar to your clearinghouse example from before. So Mm. um, that payments from 123 unit trust to the practitioners of their cut of the patient fees, that's 70% of the patient revenue, are going to be wages um, under the ruling, which, you know, I think is if we we take the the same view as the clearinghouse, sort of similar situation, so it would have a similar result. Yeah. All right, and then example 18 says the same facts as example 17, that one we just went through, except that 123 Unit Trust is controlled by Dr. Lopez. Um, Different result? Yeah, good question. So the QRO says if the payments are coming out by way of trust distributions to Dr. Lopez, they will be taken uh, uh, to be wages Mm -hmm. and wages paid by JKL under the uh, third-party payment provisions. Um, so again, you get that 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 situation that we were talking about before with um, Dr. Singh and Singco, yep. and and I guess the questions that arise there, you've got to be looking at where uh, Dr. Lopez is providing those services or who they're providing those services to is probably mm. more accurate. Yep, and I think the the critical part from our perspective, from a, a legal perspective, is who's entering into that contract. Absolutely. Who's entering into the contract and then what do the terms of the contract say and are they inconsistent with the parties, mm. I think is key. Yep. So um, where do we get from to from there? Yes, payment flows are going to be relevant and potentially the a payment flow going into a practitioner's uh, bank account is going to get you to a position that it's not deemed to be taxable wages. But as soon as we've got... Um, the practitioner's entity mm. involved, 
really we're squarely back then in a legal question of looking at those contracts to figure out where the relevant contract is. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah. Um, now, the other thing to think about here is grouping. Mm. So um, often in these situations what we find is that when a payment goes into the doctor's company, for example, if we take away the, the tripartite um, examples and the deemed payment examples, if we just had patient fees coming straight into a doctor's company's bank account mm -hmm. and then they go and pay a service fee to an arm's length service provider for, um, for some assistance for that, um, in those circumstances, if the payments coming in to the doctor's company bank, bank account is under the payroll tax threshold, typically the doctor doesn't have anything to worry about in those circumstances mm -hmm. unless they're grouped. Indeed. Yeah. And who could they be grouped with? Well, <laughs> probably the, the better way to ask that question is who may they not be grouped with. Um, your key risks, I think, here are the like the practice entity or the service entity that's employing all your admin mm -hmm. staff. So you've got to be checking um, particularly the um, common employees grouping yep. tests under the grouping um under the grouping provisions in the legislation. So where you've got an entity that employs someone who's then providing services to another entity, that's mm -hmm. where I guess uh, you know, we should trigger some questions to, to sort out whether or not those employees are common to both businesses and group, group both businesses. Um, for doctors that are, have an ownership interest either as a shareholder or, you know, a beneficiary or a trustee or, you know, a director mm. of an entity that's operating the, the medical centre or the admin entity, if I can call it that, I've got to check whether or not they're grouped under the commonly controlled businesses test. So if you've mm -hmm. got entities that are commonly controlled by the same person or set of persons, yeah. um, then they're particularly um, they're Potentially grouped um, under the under the payroll tax legislation, so we're including all the wages that the service entity pays, as well as mm -hmm. any amounts of um, taxable wages that the doctor's entity pays. So there, yeah. I guess, the two key risks that you got to be checking off. What about if the doctor's spouse is Ooh, involved? Nothing to do with medical centres, nothing to do with medical practices, but they're running uh, some other business, and there's a dozen entities in that group. Ugh. Gets messy, but you still need to check it because if there are any sort of discretionary trusts that are um, that hold any interests in those entities, so if they're shareholders of companies or potential beneficiaries of trust entities, um, then the grouping provisions can apply very broadly to mm. group all of those entities under the commonly controlled um, businesses test. And really, you get to the problem that um, for payroll tax purposes any eligible beneficiary of a discretionary trust. So any mm. potential beneficiary, you don't need to have received a distribution of income or capital from the trust, will be deemed to control that trust. So if mm. you're deemed to have a controlling interest in the trust, it then gets traced up to the entities themselves. Your, your doctor's medical company will be thrown into that payroll Absolutely. tax group until it's excluded yep. by an exclusion order. Um, all right, I think that's, a, that's a, a good point to end on because I think it just shows that even if we do all the work to make sure that we've checked the payment flow is consistent with what's in the QRO ruling, we've checked the agreements to make sure that they're sitting on the right side of the fence of what's in the, the QRO ruling, we still have to make sure that we don't get tripped up on that grouping issue yep. as, the, as the last step. Um, all right, well, it's been a pleasure. 
You too. Thank you. <laughs> so um, this is our podcast series, Taxland, with me, Fletch Heinemann. And me, Sarah Lancaster. And we look forward to um, being with you again for a new episode soon. Mm-hmm.